Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. go here we are at the principles of performance podcast my name is eric degatti your host and i'm flying solo today my partner and co-host mike perry is unavailable uh only because scheduling wise the guy we're having on today i've been trying to get for months and i did not want to miss this opportunity we're like right in the midst of the holiday so didn't want to miss the opportunity to get this guy let me give you a little background on our guest today zach evanesh trained thousands of athletes from the youth to Olympic level. He founded the Underground Strength Gym in the early 2000s. So him and I started around the same time. And uh, he's helped pioneer this whole hardcore warehouse gym movement. And then after starting that, he started the Underground Strength Coach Certification and the SSPC uh, Certification, uh, both of which have inspired and educated coaches all over the world. Um, and he's consulted, you name it, Division One athletic teams, Olympic-level athletic clubs, Spartan Race Pro Teams, Naval Special Warfare, FBI, independent coaches, uh, awesome guy. He also serves as strength and conditioning coordinator for Manasquan High School, and he's the state director for the New Jersey uh, National High School Strength Coach Association. And so excited we finally got this to happen, Coach. Eric, thank you. One, one correction. I live in Manasquan, but I'm a uh, strength coach at Middletown High School South. <clears throat> but the underground yeah. strength gym is in Manasquan. But who knows? Maybe one day everything will be like a bike ride away. <laughs> we can only hope, right? So, um, yeah. so, so let's dive right into it. So you have this huge affinity for old school classic strength methods, and so love talk it. a little bit about your love for this historical iron culture. Yeah, like just before this, um, I posted a podcast that was kind of like a spin on the old book keys to progress so keys to progress you know became a book but it was a bunch of articles uh written by john mccallum strength and health magazine 60s through sometime in the 70s i believe and i i've always been inspired because of kind of the era i grew up in uh when i first started training was out of a ymca and it, it may have been a 1200 or 1400 square foot kind of hole in the wall gym downstairs next to the basketball courts, next to the pool, next to the heater. And uh, as a kid, you know, the book I read was Arnold's encyclopedia of modern bodybuilding and those black and white photos. I would look at them and they were so, you know, they were, uh, you know, the photos of today is everything's kind of like posed and um, choreographed. Whereas those photos were action shots of the guys lifting and training heavy and being intense or just hanging out together. And I felt like every photo shared this story and my personality just got like attracted to this, like work ethic, this intensity, the beauty behind the basics. 
And uh, as much as, you know, like we, we evolve with all of our training at the underground strength gym, I miss the simplicity and the purity of just showing up to a gym that didn't have fancy equipment. Uh, there was a tape deck in the corner, <laughs> put the ACDC cassette tape in there and just, you know, banging those weights. So I miss that stuff. Something about it is inspiring uh, to me. And sometimes it's hard to put into words. And I think if you didn't grow up around it, it's hard to really understand how special that was, you know? So today what's interesting, Eric is like, if you go into a regular gym, so many people are just sitting on their phone. Well, I remember as a kid, there was one guy in this gym that was always on the reading his newspaper. And I mean, always in between sets, reading the newspaper. I remember watching him do leg presses with the newspaper, you know, wide open. And that one guy was considered, you know, such a weirdo by everybody. They were like, oh, it's that guy, that guy. To me, that's the equivalent of somebody on their phone. Now, now everybody is on their phone. And so I, I think I grew up in, in gyms where training really made, that was the definition of training. Whereas the guy in his reading the newspaper was working out. And so there was something deeper rooted, a deeper meaning when you were training. And so I, I love that stuff. And I, uh, you know, that stuff fires me up where, you know, other people are more fired up with, um, you know, testing somebody's vertical jump, testing the flying 10. Uh, I'm more fired up about like building people that are like strong, powerful, durable. And I think that's something that's also missing in today's training. Cause we've gotten too fancy. So hard to put it into words, but, uh, I'm surrounded by old books, old strength training books. Well, we'll get back to the durable part. And you have everybody under 30 Googling what a tape deck is right now. Um, <laughs> yes. Try to figure that out. So what, what what's often is what's old gets recycled as new is kind of trends come and go. So like yep. even like 20 rep squats is like people are considered this new thing to try. I remember doing Randall Strassen's, you know, super squats great you know, book 20 years ago you know and so it's funny how some of the stuff recycles so we talk about that what are some of the things from the past that have come back that we've kind of bastardized in their current interpretation yeah that's a, that's an interesting one you're seeing um you know some i think some strength coaches are pulling from what's old as well as what's new so like alan bishop is a basketball strength coach at um, I think it's called University of Houston and he has a great Twitter and he's got his guys doing um, uh, partial squats from the from from different positions maybe because they're basketball players who are like six foot eight seven feet tall he's got them doing hack squats William Wayland who trains um, golfers is doing RDLs and barbell rowing. And so we're seeing exercises that from quote unquote back in the day, because we didn't have machines for them. Uh, coaches are, are looking at athletes who are under muscled and they're realizing, Oh, I have to use bodybuilding methods. I've got to do, um, drop sets, mechanical drop sets, which is when you change the position to keep getting more reps. I've got to incorporate supersets. Supersets was being done 
you know, circuit training was kind of like the early model of full body strength, but supersets was massively popular in the 70s with uh, Arnold and that golden era crew. Dave Draper said things like, you know, what's a workout? What's a training session without supersets? So he would do incline dumbbell bench and then he'd stand up with those dumbbells and do uh, dumbbell shrugs. Arnold always supersetted chest and back. And those are ways to develop general physical preparation in athletes without having them do, quote unquote, you know, endless, endless cardio Uh, exercises that we see a lot of arm training exercises on some of these uh, websites like uh, Zotman curls or the Chuck Sipes 110 one method where you, you know, you do a rep. Then you go to two reps, three reps, all the way up to 10, down to one. So volume training is making a comeback, not from everybody, because I think still a lot of coaches are, are overly conservative. They you know, think like if we do too much work, this athlete is going to fall apart. But to build muscle, we need to push some of the volume on athletes and even some of the nutrition concepts, Eric. Um, one of the videos I was just kind of playing in the background was, We've seen really popularized things like uh, intermittent fasting, keto. Well, in the uh, 60s, Vince Gironda had what he called the steak and eggs diet or the Stone Age diet. And he would do that for six weeks with a bodybuilder or a movie star, an actor, uh, to help this actor get lean and muscular. So he trained, um, uh, who's Apollo? Carl, Carl Weathers, correct? Carl Weathers. He trained Carl Weathers. Uh, he trained, you know, Arnold during a little bit of time. But these nutrition strategies, I, I've read about them in magazines before the 70s. So I think the article was called uh, the high definition diet. And basically, that was a keto diet It was high protein, high fat, um, minimal, if any carbs. And that became popular probably like around 2010 or something like that, because uh, where did we get this information from? The bodybuilders from many decades ago, they had to uh, do the thing and then they had to, they would kind of like share with others. So the uh, transfer of information obviously was, is different than today, but we had people that actually did it versus those that are kind of like doing it to uh, make a video. Whereas guys back then were like, Oh, this is what delivers results. And uh, you're up in North Jersey, you know, the best gym I trained out of was diamond gym, which is like the West side barbell of bodybuilding. And I learned a lot of nutrition methods by speaking with those bodybuilders. And especially, you know, the late John Kemper who founded diamond gym, he grew up in the golden era. So I remember him teaching me how to eat, um, higher protein, higher fat to help me actually build strength while getting leaner. Um, these are things that we didn't create now. These were things that came from, they came from before you and I were born. That's, you know, this stuff's been around. And so um, I guess what's old is new again, when a couple of influencers come across a old book. <laughs> it's funny when I teach workshops, Zach, I, I'll, I'll say, all right, do we have any ancient Greeks in the room? You know, everybody look around. And I say, all right, do we have any yogis that are like 2,000 years or older? No. Okay. So uh, how about any people from uh, the old Eastern Europe and Soviet Union uh, from about 1,000 years ago? Okay. So 
you didn't invent shit because the the ancient Greeks were using medicine balls. Yoga has been around. Every mobility drill we do is just derivative. Yes. Yoga. And then um, so true. And then they've been using kettlebells in 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 Soviet Union for for a thousand years. You know, so with trading their soldiers. So, is there anything that we've taken from from those from any time along that timeline, and that we think you've actually we've done a good job and made it better? That's a great question. You mentioned like uh, the Russian manuals. So like I have um, my eyes are not that good, just kind of scanning my library, but like secrets of uh, Dr. Yessi's book, I thought was great. Um, the original was secret of Soviet sport and fitness training. And then the, the updated version was uh, secrets of Russian because uh, Soviet Union became Russia. What have we done better you know, it's pretty tough to say. I think, you know, in America, since, uh, and I've seen Travis Mash say this, so I'm going to probably paraphrase this, is he said, listen, like, you know, we've looked at what the Russians have done and the Eastern Europeans have done. He's like, a major difference that we do in America is most of our athletes try to stay clean. They try to stay drug-free, whereas in Russia, <clears throat> They were learning how to, uh, or or really those Eastern European countries, Bulgaria, Romania, it's like they were learning how to beat the drug test. And so <clears throat> as Americans, some of those Russians came to America um, or when they left Soviet Union. I, I don't remember the name, but I know like the book, uh, The System that Johnny Parker co-authored. There was a uh, Soviet uh, sports scientist who I think moved to Staten Island, and I think his name was like Grigor or Gregory. And I think what in America, what we learned to do was, quote unquote, optimize the training. But what we uh, still have struggled to improve upon, Eric, is their youth training. That's, you know, if I could kind of like back that up. So where have we improved upon it? Optimal training for natural athletes. Um, learning to do just what they need and then be done with it. Although I'll say this, those athletes or those coaches that do that, those athletes are very fortunate. They're coming across a coach who's very in tune, has a great coach's eye. He or she can see what the athlete needs and, and can change things. Um, but what I think we've really failed to do, Eric, is why haven't we copied their uh, youth model that helps build a model athlete versus uh, all these surgeries. And uh, like you, you and I said, kind of grew up in this era at the same time, you and I have seen a massive shift in injuries, injuries, and uh, injuries that require surgery by the time an athlete is a teenager. You know, you might train a 16-year-old girl soccer player who has already had both ACLs repaired or a baseball player in high school who had to get a UCL repair. And so I think that would have been fixed if we copied their youth model, which is implementation of gymnastics in those youth years and multiple sports until around the age of 15 or 16, and then allow them to specialize unless they're in uh, a sport that requires year-round specialization like figure skating and gymnastics so we've improved on optimizing but that being said Eric I also think that's a catch-22 because I think we've gotten so conservative 
that uh, kind of like what I said earlier, we don't have durable athletes because we're trying to make everything so perfect that when they do go into a challenging situation or go into a fatigued state, which happens, you know, I know you're in big in baseball. Well, a kid is going to be fatigued when he's playing his third game of the day and it's 95 degrees, you know, baseball tournament. And the coach is maybe not so dialed in and um, he hasn't pulled him out or the nutrition and the hydration is not there. And, and then we see injuries. I mean, I watched a baseball player. I think he was like 12 years old. He broke his elbow while pitching. I saw it at a, at our little league field a couple of years ago. So we're so quote unquote perfect and optimal that as soon as the competition is not optimal, uh, the athlete breaks down. So, you know, we've improved upon a lot, the programming, the optimization, but I think we have gotten fearful of the work required to build a durable athlete who can have longevity. Yeah. And I think the problem is, is that we like to skip steps. We want to skip ahead yes. to the, to the cool YouTube stuff, but we forget the stuff you were talking about, the foundational things. And then there's also the mindset and the mental approach of training, like talk about like how that's different now than when we started 20 plus years ago. That's a, that's a great point. And I know I ramble when I give these uh, answers and I got a really uh, tremendous respect for the coaches who are in sport coaching for 15, 20 plus years, because they are seeing the shift and the change in each generation. So for example, when I was a coach, I mean, when I was an athlete being coached in the late 80s, early 90s through high school, our coaches didn't really explain things. It was kind of like a do this. This is what I say. And I think if I would have understood better, maybe my training could have been better. But I feel like my coaches were a bit <laughs> ahead of their time teaching plyometrics. But back decades ago, 20 plus years ago, the, the coaching was a lot more aggressive, a lot more intense. There wasn't as much competition. And I'll say this, Eric, the practices kicked our ass. Now, sport teams in high school have much more competition, so they practice less. And I'm finding that that actually doesn't beat up their body as much. Like I grew up wrestling and going having a match was a walk in the park compared to a two and a half to three hour practice, no water breaks, just beating the crap out of your body. So, you know, pre 2010, the coaching was kind of blunt to the point, aggressive, intense, very in your face. Then we kind of transitioned into a more communication style where you have to learn to um, find out deeper what makes this athlete tick what's going on at home you're built you're you're in the business of relationships and i gotta admit sometimes i want to bypass all that and just get to the work get to the coaching meaning i'm not saying oh he people might say he doesn't care about the kids quite the opposite i want to get to the point where we just have to work because um i like at a high school level I'm chasing kids a lot. You have to make this relationship with the kid and be like, how's everything going? What's going on at home? How's school? How's this? How's that? And what's happening is I think we're making kids so sensitive, just like the training is so optimal that the kids lack emotional durability. 
And so anything that doesn't jive with them, they're out. And so you're becoming like this blend of not just a strength and sport performance coach, you're becoming almost like a therapist to them. And to be honest with you, like, that's not our forte, but it becomes, uh, I think, sometimes an angle for kids to get away from the work, meaning, you know, like last uh, two weeks ago, I took my school on a trip to Princeton University. It was a sports performance trip. Uh, we went to the Amish market right outside Princeton. So the kids can see, look at this limited supermarket. You know, it was very small. Um, you're buying foods that are not injected with hormones or, you know, sprayed with all kinds of pesticides. Then we went to the university and spoke with um, my friend is the strength coach there, James DiVincenzi. He's been there for, I think, 15 or so years. We spoke with the nutrition nutritionist and they had like their um and then call it like a mental health counselor. And I think sometimes athletes who need to be working and facing the struggles and the fears, they are sometimes given an out. And I think that can be a mistake because the crucible is what shapes you. The challenge is what changes the athlete. And just like our training getting too optimal, we can get too caught up in like the emotional perfection needed for each athlete when that becomes hard at the high school level sometimes i have groups of 80 athletes right and so things can get lost and so i think that's another kind of step we we've gone in is like as a coach i'm reading i have on my desk you know like brett bartholomew's book you're just learning all these communication because step one is this athlete needs to be has you have to earn the athlete's trust they have to believe that you care. And I think today, some athletes or possibly many athletes misconstrue your tough workouts. You're challenging them as you being mean to them. Whereas if I didn't have a tough coach who pushed us, then I would not have been a tough athlete. And in sports, we need to be tough during the tough times. Think about when uh, if you're watching a football game or a soccer game, when does the game tend, when does the win tend to happen during a tough game? It happens when a, another team gets fatigued and the other team is in better shape and has a little bit more toughness because they've trained in a challenging manner that not only provides the physical benefit, but provides the mental and emotional and psychological advantage. It's an edge that you could build through tough training. I'd be lying to coaches, athletes, and parents if I said, we don't need to train hard for your athlete to become a champion. And I'm not just talking about winning more. I'm talking about life. You know, you and I are, you know, I always say, quote, unquote, older. Um, relationships can be tough. And if you quit anytime it gets tough, um, those relationships, whether it's friendships or some sort of, you know, uh, dating interpersonal relationships, those relationships will end quicker. But if I have some uh, toughness to me, I understand that I have to face the challenge of becoming a better communicator, becoming a better leader, listening to somebody else telling me how to improve. But if I give up anytime there's a challenge, how far will I get in life? Not far at all. And that's why coaching needs to have at least some element 
of tough situations, both physical and emotional. So I, I know, like I said, I, I never have a short answer, Eric. I wish I did, but um, training and the whole coaching needs an element of challenge and toughness for anybody to go beyond average. I'll say that. Well, there's, there's a lot that you encapsulated there, Zach, in terms of just how difficult our job is, especially at the high school level, because you have this, this high wire that we're walking in that we have kids that are a lot more fragile, especially post COVID, uh, that are a lot more fragile that we have to learn how to connect with. And so, but the, the thing is that you, you see a lot of coaches and there was a rant that, that was going on that I jumped in. Um, where people are saying, oh, everybody, every generation has said these kids are different, they're soft, they're not like they used to be. I don't think that that's so much the case. I think it's it's a little tougher to communicate with them and that usually the spoiled kid who's having a tantrum is dying for discipline and, and they're dying for, for challenge, right? You just have to find an artful way to do that. And now that the challenge is, can you do that and hold back the reins of your skill coaches who think that that gets done by you know, running a lot of gassers and that's not the solution either. And so we have to kind of figure out a way where we can push you right to the edge of their ability and their, their, um, uh, their capacity without pushing them over and out breaking them down even further. Cause like you said, we're already dealing with kids who are broken down and injured, right? So it's this high wire act that we're doing to balance all those things. That's very true. We're going to have to do a part two. My wife just said, I also have to take my daughter to PT. So I'm going to, I'm gonna, we're going to have to do a part two, but I, I want to say something about what you just said, Eric, which is spot on strategic and dialed in and shows your expertise, which is we have to learn as coaches how to make it challenging, but not to the point where it creates injury or damage to the athlete. It has to be. And to me, you know, maybe that's the definition of optimal, but you know, I always explain like at our, at my private facility, our coaches have to know, okay, wh where are you coming from? Did you just come from practice? How was practice? Oh, you also lifted. You need plan B, plan C. And I think that's what makes a great coach is to make the adjustment on the physical um, side. And then on the emotional side, let's say you're meeting with the sport coach or the parent of the athlete and they describe that their son daughter or you know this this specific athlete is uh, tends to break down and lose whenever there's a tough situation a tough match a tough play and when that happens I find that simply by implementing like a little bit of like a tough finisher to the training session um, builds them physically if the coach can say ah Look how you just crushed that workout and got them to push through it. So for us, a big aspect of the training is um, carries, calisthenics, sleds, some sort of finisher that's challenging but doesn't destroy the athlete um, and also gives them a physical advantage. To me, that's one of the most important like durability elements of our programming is our carries, calisthenics, and sleds. Those are three training tools slash methods and elements that I think athletes should use on the regular. It's something you mentioned, you know, with like the uh, Soviets, the Russians, if you look at those old books, it's there's like drawings of them pulling sleds. There's lots of calisthenics um, in those books from the Eastern Europeans. 
And I think about it like, why, why, why would I see the baseball player break his elbow pitching? He probably could not do 10 push-ups, let alone one pull-up. So we're trying to, like you said, like we're trying to skip the foundation and go right to, you know, building the custom home. Um, you know, I live down the shore. So I, I see so much building happening. And what happens first? The foundation. They dig deep into the ground. That foundation is built deep. I mean, you see layers upon layers of cinder blocks. They don't just throw a beautiful house on kind of this dirt, this big patch of dirt land. It doesn't work that way. So I think like, what are we missing with our kids is pushing and pulling sleds, jumping rope, using monkey bars. I, I've seen elementary schools rip out playground equipment, you know, when a, and a student gets hurt. And I'm not talking about, you know, a student breaking a neck. I'm talking about somebody's on the monkey bars, let's go, lands not far from the from the uh, not far away from the ground and they might, you know, break an ankle or break a hand when they land. Well, all the more reason for our kids to have this. Hey everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. All right, so picking up where we left off, I think I know the perfect spot where we're going to go here, Coach. <laughs> Talk about so, the significance of the Rocky movies. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I think the big significance behind it is the work ethic and the, uh, like, the ability to go all in without waiting for the perfection, right? So there's a lot of things there. From the training aspects, you've got, uh, I mean, it's a tough one. Rocky Three and Rocky Four were amazing. You know, Rocky Four, of course, him being in uh, Russia and training outdoors and training in the barn. But Rocky Three was the significance of his coach and um, then his coach dying and going into uh, or going to, I think he was in like South Central LA when Apollo took him back. So that, that one really hits home on like the power of your environment and getting away from all the perfect stuff, right? And then Mickey in the Rocky films really uh, talking, you know, he, he saw that coming. He knew that uh, he said that line. He's like, the, the worst thing that could happen to any fighter happened to you. You got civilized. You got all this money. You got the beautiful house, the cars. You know, the training partners are kind of fancy. Your uh, fights are hand-picked. And, you know, that's why I sometimes question even my own training here. I'm at, I'm at my uh, underground strength gym. I've been here for 11 years, but I question it because I'm like, man, I'm so much smarter than when I opened the first warehouse in 2007. Yet um, we had more success in the early years compared to now. And so the way I kind of bring that all together is I say this. Never have I seen athletes do so much stuff, air quotes, 
yet achieve so little in return. So that could be baseball players, wrestlers, basketball players, right? I'm going to go see my son. Um, he's in a basketball tournament and his high school has a tremendous basketball team. One of the best in the state. Uh, the girls team is one of the best in the country. And these basketball courts in town are empty. I've lived in this town for like 13, 14 years, and I have never seen a pickup basketball game here. Yet, when I go back to where I grew up in Edison, there was a park, Roosevelt Park. And I remember the first kid I trained uh, was a basketball player. And the way I trained him was he borrowed his dad's truck to pick up the used gym equipment. And I said, if you do that, my trade will be training you all summer. So I said, you'll do the strength and conditioning with me three days a week. But I said, you have to play basketball at Roosevelt Park. You have to play pickup games with the guys because if you could hang with them, you will not just be a varsity player. You will thrive because they were so physical. I mean, it was grown men. It was like very aggressive, hardcore street ball. And we don't see that anymore. We don't see pickup baseball games, right? We don't see that stuff. And I honestly think, uh, that lack of grit and that lack of kind of free play is it's really destroying the skills of our athletes. Um, although we sometimes or often might see some very high skilled players at these young levels, Eric, young ages, but they're so little and you and I are um, in our forties. And when you and I were in high school, you could go on to a team in high school that you never played before. Maybe not baseball because it was such a skill sport, but you could have started. More kids could play football for the first time. More kids could wrestle for the first time. There was a freshman team, JV and varsity for every team. You were on freshman, your freshman year, sophomore year, JV. So you had these two years of developing before you went to varsity. And, uh, you know, now like, if somebody saw me training athletes like I did out of my house and garage, I don't know, maybe they would think it's cool because it would be like a, uh, it would look cool. Or maybe they would be like, ah, like, where's all the technology? Where's, you know, touching the screen with all these buttons. When I see that stuff, Eric, I'm like, ah, is that really making those kids better? So Rocky and, and ironically, a lot of kids have not really watched Rocky. And if they do, they got their phone in their hand, so they're not immersed in it. When Rocky came out, my neighbor had the Rocky cassette tape. And I, I go over his house. He puts the cassette tape into his stereo, and he grabs dumbbells that were under his bed. <laughs> it starts curling right away. And every day was curls and push-ups. And that doesn't sound like a quote-unquote good program. But I'll tell you what, a lot of kids could use curls and push-ups every day because they're getting to high school, they can't even do a push-up. And so where are those movies that inspire our younger generation? And of course, now every gym has to be fancier and more expensive. And I really think one day, Eric, like I'm gonna, this will be gone and I'll be back in a garage and it'll just be like a total of 20 kids. And it's gonna be like people who really wanna be elite. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with developing athletes, but I personally feel there's something wrong with our culture when we have to teach a high school kid how to do a push-up and we have to teach a high school kid how to curl. You know, those are things I felt like every teenager should know. So um, 
yeah, Rocky, special place in my, I almost called my gym tough gym, but I look at it, I'm like, which would have scared more people away in a business sense, underground or tough gym? You know, now I feel like the gym names of today are like um, elite, you know, elite speed academy. It has to have this like crazy word to it. And honestly, like if I boil it down, Eric, sometimes I'm like, I feel like our industry, it's like overflowed with bullshit. That's really what it is. We got a lot to pick through through there. And then I'll do you one more. I, my my brother and I had the Rocky cassette that had the workout poster that folded out. And you do all your oh calisthenics with that. We used to do it in his room. So now <laughs> I a can't couple believe things, that. A couple things. One is when you talk about, I want you to clarify. So for the people that are listening, is that when you're talking about okay, it doesn't have to be perfect. We're not talking about allowing shitty form or letting kids just like just do whatever. Correct. Um, we're talking about that we don't have to have, we don't have to be nearly as technical as we think because we're, as we were talking about um, earlier, is we're not, we're not skipping steps. We're we want to, we want to get some of these fundamentals down. And so uh, we're going to get to that in a second because I have another question. But I think a lot of this blame, and I'll take it for my generation, is it's our fault, is because we never let our kids struggle. We never let our yes. kids have to figure things out and never let our kids fail, which are three of the biggest components of, of sports. Three of the biggest components of being an athlete is being how to learn how to deal with failure, learning how to make decisions and adjustments and learning how to, how to just figure things out on your own when mom and dad's not there for you. And so we've carried their bags for them. We've made all play dates for everything athletic they've ever You're done. Right. Like you said, and there is no pickup anything because we're scared to let our kid ride his bike to the park, let alone go play in a pickup basketball game with kids that they, they don't know. So that's our fault. It is. Right? We, we are the generation that grew up in the 70s and 80s parenting these kids. But I think, you know, there's there's the guys and girls, parents like us who were in competitive sports who have one understanding of the work required then you might have parents who were not in a competitive sport. They're really lost as to what is required with regards to work ethic, commitment, consistency. And, um, you know, you're right. Like I think to myself with my son playing baseball, I, I've never played baseball, but he had me on the side of the house catching for him. And I had like furniture in front of me and shit. <laughs> I was like, I, I was like, dude, where are your friends? Where are the kids in this town who could ride their bike here and catch for you? I've never played baseball. I can't catch a 70 mile an hour ball. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a 70 mile an hour ball coming at you is the equivalent of like Godzilla. Coming at you, you know, it's scary. And so you are right. It's like, we've, we did it. We did it to our own kids by being so scared. And, and I remind my wife about that a lot. And it was just a different times, the ability to play in the street, to ride your bike everywhere, built tremendous fitness, right? And now these same parents are like, I'm afraid it's too much. I'm like, what's too much? He played an hour and a half of basketball, you know? And then I say to them, do you, does your, did your husband, you, you know, I'm the same age of the parents of the kids I train. So I'll sometimes have to say, do you remember playing outside all the time? And then I'll say, your husband probably rode his bike 10 hours a day in the summer. He didn't overtrain his legs. And so 
we get worried about this. And I joke with my wife too. I'm like, Oh no, like Ethan ran around the block, get him to the chiropractor, get him Gatorade. Like he needs special sneakers because that's what happens. And uh, that's also a big reason, Eric, why I think we lack durability in our athletes is they have these um, skills that exist in a vacuum, but they don't have the strength capacity, the durability to withstand all the practices. Um, and so I'll, I'll share examples, right? Meaning we had a mom reached out. We trained her son all through middle school and awesome kid, high level with all his sports, like best kid on the team with baseball, basketball. Well, they had to pull him from training a month ago because he's on three basketball teams, school, middle school, plus two travel teams. And one of those travel teams promised strength and conditioning. And most of the time, I just let it go. I just say, you know what? I've, I've gotten that email, you know, probably a thousand plus times over the course of, you know, 15 plus years now. Because <clears throat> 20 years ago, the excessive business of travel wasn't there. I'd say 2010, 2012, it blew up. And I said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to you as a coach and as a dad. <clears throat> as a dad, you're busy, and I don't want to be a source of stress to anybody's family. Period. So if you don't want to be here, we don't want, I'm not going to push you here. But I said, now I'm going to give you the coach angle. And I said, this is my obligation. This is my job. This is my duty to protect your son. <clears throat> I said, the reason why we see so many injuries the past 12, 15 years is because of what you have your son doing. He's playing so many sports. He doesn't even have time to be strong. And so the body breaks down. And when the body needs a break and he's in all these things and, and doesn't get a break, the body finds a way to rest by getting hurt. It breaks down. <clears throat> well, I got the email today. They said they would do strength and conditioning, but it's not happening. Listen, who is training your son or daughter? What is their expertise? Okay. What is their expertise in sports performance slash strength and conditioning? What is their education? What is their experience? What is their track record? A lot of these big businesses that have basketball, baseball, wrestling, they do that stuff as like a shitty add-on. <clears throat> they get somebody who has maybe a little bit of workout knowledge themselves, not coaching knowledge, and then they just let the person run with it. And they're like, well, this is just another thing we could tack on to our business, right? This is a arm care program. Okay, it's an arm care program, but you can't do one pull-up. Okay, it's a you know strength and conditioning program, but what's the difference between the 15-year-old and the 12-year-old? Ah, we don't have like, you know, or are you gonna say anything to the kid who keeps squatting halfway down, or do you not even realize it? Or that kid whose ankles are collapsing when squatting. Is that a red flag for you? Not if you're not educated, not if you don't have the knowledge. So sports as a industry or fee or business, whatever's going on is in a really bad place. Cause everybody's kind of trying to wrestle <clears throat> for time with the kid, with the athlete. And uh, I think I've gotten to a place <clears throat> where I've been doing it for so long that I, I just let it go. If somebody doesn't want to be here or legitimately can't get here because of all the travel stuff they do, I let it go. And they have to, like you said, they have to experience the falling and getting back up. They have to experience 
the detraining effect when you stop training and get weaker and then they lose confidence. They have to experience it. Me talking about it. I've been talking about in-season training. I've been making videos on YouTube since 2006 about in-season training. Every year, we get a lot of kids who drop out in-season. And every year, those kids, they fall short of really where they could have been and or they get injured. Our, sorry about that. Our worst kids, our kids that get the most injuries, they have the least consistency in training. And it's heartbreaking, but that's the truth of it. So, um, but we could only do so much. And look, at even as a dad, I'm in those shoes with my own kids as athletes. Is like, when do I have time to actually build them so they're bulletproof from the demands of sport? Because uh, baseball in the 90s had X number of games. Baseball today has double the amount of games. And if they couple it with travel ball, we're putting like four times the amount of stress on their body that the at that the baseball player had in the nineties in a year or, or, or the, yeah. So one year of ours would be four years of our work in the nineties is equivalent to one year of their work today because of how much they play and practice. So now that's a perfect segue to, to my next question in terms of bandwidth and that we're almost fighting a losing battle by the time we get somebody because we have so little access, so little time, and we have so much stuff to cover with them because they're already so far behind that one of, the, one of the ways that we can get ourselves out of this is you work in a school system that if we could change phys ed to where we could actually teach physical literacy, and you mentioned it earlier, if you look at what other countries do for their physical education, our physical education, and this goes, there's a long history to this, is goes is just sports and it's sports yes. driven. It's roll out the ball. Whereas it's not actual physical development and developing physical literacy. If we could have better physical literacy development in our school system, well, then we could actually have a chance to do something by the time they get to us. Yeah. And, and listen, there's, I mean, we could unpack that in a million ways. And I've taught elementary phys ed for 11 or 12 years. Now I'm a full-time strength coach in the high school. And even then it's still a struggle. When I was in the elementary school, <clears throat> a couple of years into it, they removed the gymnastics tumbling mats because somebody complained. They wanted to pull out the playground equipment because somebody was on the monkey bars during recess. And when they dropped down, <clears throat> they kind of planted their hands strong and broke a wrist. And I had to explain to the administration is this is why we need those things. So you learn how to land. So you learn how to fall. So you get strong enough to build your body. And so it, we might think, hey, the phys ed teachers have to change. But then <clears throat> we need administration to support it. Does that administration, are they willing to deal with complaining parents <clears throat> who want their way rather than what's best for the whole. Then you have who's the administration to the health and phys ed supervisor or the athletic director. You got the superintendent and then you got like five different assistant <clears throat> superintendents. And so really what it comes down to is where does our country see physical fitness as a whole? And I don't know where the uh, president's council of physical fitness is, but I think the last time it had some clout to it was when Arnold was the president 
when uh, George Bush or um, George Bush Sr. was uh, president. But now it's like these um, celebrities, and I'm not even sure what they're actually doing to really proactively change physical education. And so it starts in these little pockets, and then it expands, and you have these little pockets where things are going great. But overall, I think it's like you need the president of the United States of America to talk about what it takes. Um, who was the president where they always, uh, it was JFK, who says like, uh, you know, the worst thing is going to be if our kids are chubby, pale skinned, and they are bystanders, bystanders, and just observing rather than participating. So, you know, it starts at home. Then the teacher has to make it happen. Then the teacher has to influence the school culture. Then the principal and the administration have to believe in it. Then it has to spread out. And so, you know, it always starts within. My buddy John Wellborn always says, nobody's coming to save you. You know, you are on your own to, to take care of yourself. And as a parent, it is up to you to raise your kids to be strong, healthy, and fit. I think mean, he, he shares a quote, something like, don't apologize for raising your kids to be, you know, dragon slayers in a world where dragon slayers are, are needed more than ever before. So as a phys ed, you know, that was my earliest background, physical education. And you want to go do something. Well, does your colleague want to do it? Does your colleague make it difficult for you to implement it? Because if so, they crush that they cancel your uh, ability to create new culture. And as much as people bash CrossFit, when CrossFit was new and phys ed teachers were getting into CrossFit, they were implementing the workout of the day in physical education. And you know what? Squats, burpees, sprinting, just getting, but everybody was on board. There must be continuity. And I think, Eric, we lack continuity in, in all of America, right? Like, the high school coach oftentimes doesn't interact with the middle school coach. Uh, the youth coaches are kind of doing their thing and oftentimes what's best for their kid and not really, you know, helping out the other kids. And so, man, I, I think we're in a really tough place. And I know I'm trying to control what I could control, which is what happens here at the underground strength gym, what happens at home and what happens where I'm at the high school. And the high school is very challenging. Very challenging because you still have time constraints. You have kids who can't get rides. You have maybe I've got strength and conditioning for one class a day, but then where do those kids go during the other classes when I'm not in there? Oh, can you come after school? Ah, my, my sport coach doesn't want us training with you. I mean, at the end of the day, if we just said what is best for the kids, we would all get them strong, fit, powerful. They'd eat healthy. But I think a lot of times at the end of the day, Eric, is people are just doing what they want for their ego. They just care about this is what's on my mind. This is what I believe in. And there's not a, a whole lot of give and take, whereas I want to hear what a coach ideas you have. But if I'm if this is what I've like lived and breathed since, you know, my teenage years and you want to train your team, but you can't do one pull up you don't really understand the intricacies of training. You might have done these exercises 10, 20, 30 years ago, but 
kids are very different today and they need an expert in the training methods and understanding proper progressions. Um, because like I always say, uh, and a coach said it to me, he's like 10 years ago, kids didn't struggle to do push-ups. And I'm telling you around the iPhone, that's when I started seeing a, a weaker athlete showing up who just had these weird movement patterns. So when the iPhone started and then businesses began to grow with all these travel teams and sport clubs and those kids get too busy to strength train. And now we have weak athletes who are highly skilled, but you need to marry them together to really build the ultimate athlete. I mean, this, you know, I'm sorry. I, I ramble so much, but these topics, like I could talk about each, I could answer each question for 72 hours. You know, it, it's, uh, we're in a tough place, man. Yeah. And to, to, to back your point up a, a little, uh, history lesson for everybody listening and, and uh, a, re a book recommendation. There's a book called the uh, JFK's Secret Doctor. Uh, it's by a guy by the name of E.B. Schwartz. And, I heard of and it. It's a, and it's about Hans Kraus, who is a physiotherapist who came here from Europe. And he, the, the backstory is, is that he became the secret doctor to help JFK with his back pain. But he had this, he did it through a series of calisthenic exercises that he created and almost one of the, the first movement screens, so to speak, to say, well, if you can't do these things, of course your back's going to hurt, here's exercises to address it. And then he actually brought it to the New York, City, New York City school system and he tested the kids in there and a huge amount of them failed. And this is going back to the 60s. And the, the school chancellor said, well, that's your test is wrong. And he said, no, it's not. He went back to Europe. And almost every single kid passed. And he said, you have a problem here. And when he started working with, with politicians, specifically JFK, he said, look, if you don't change your physical culture, you're not going to have enough people to fight your wars in a few, few years. Oh. And sure enough, what, and that's when he started the Presidential Physical Fitness Council. Um, and that's why we had that, because they were afraid that we're not going to have people who are physically literate enough to actually serve. And so we're actually seeing that with a huge amount of breakdown. I've worked with the military a couple of times, huge amount of breakdown with people who are just break the same thing, tons of injuries in their training with our soldiers because they're not as physically literate as they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so that's kind of where it came from. But unfortunately, he got Bud Grant to be the head advisor. Bud Grant's a football coach. He made it about sports. And that's how we kind of got to where we are today. Now- oh. It's now, if you now fast forward, some of the stuff that you also mentioned in terms of having some, some basic things, I went in and did some, we did some movement testing in a middle school with a, a, a colleague of mine, who's, who's uh, a phys ed teacher there. And we did some basic movement testing and some basic baseline physical tests. And what, what was shot. the tests? And so we just had them doing simple things. Zach. It was touch your toes. It was rotate. It was extend. It was balance on one leg. And they, and they either had a pass or fail and they had to report if they felt pain. And I was very explicit because I ran it and oversaw all the testing. I said, only put that it hurts if that, if it's like, ouch, I don't want to do that anymore. If you feel okay. a stretch, if you feel discomfort, don't put that as pain. Only if it, ouch, I don't want to do that again. And when I tell you over 30% of the kids had pain on at least one of those movements, and I'm talking touch your toes, reach back and extend, rotate, reach your hands behind your back, simple maneuvers. And they're having pain doing that. So what do you think that's going to do to them being able to sit in class and pay attention all day? 
uh, if they're dealing with that sort of stuff. Then on the physical literacy stuff, we had them doing straight arm hangs. And by lunchtime, we had kids coming up to us saying, uh, the nurse is saying she's getting a bunch of kids coming in complaining that their hands hurt from hanging, <laughs> from, hang, from hanging from a bar. And I can guarantee you the kid who went and complained to the nurse who actually got up and went to the nurse because their hands hurt, that's not the wrestler who, who held it for two minutes. It's the kid who hung from a bar for 15 seconds. And now he's going not to the even. nurse. Not even. Probably did it nurse. three seconds. Think um, about that. By the way, dead hangs. Just hanging from bars is something I recommend and did myself to help heal my shoulder injury. I started accumulating hangs throughout my day. I have a pair of gymnastic rings in the garage, and I would build up to a total of five minutes throughout the day, 30 seconds at a time. And I remember in like three days, my shoulder pain, it was the, my shoulder was so bad that like driving was hard. I couldn't put my hand on the steering wheel. So now when we are, when I train baseball players and overhead athletes, I make them sneak in dead hangs or one of our most popular, you know, ab exercises is hanging knee raise or hanging leg raise. And also here, I'm going to just flip this around. You know, it's not very big, but I have monkey bars in the gym. And so we will go um, side to side, front to back and uh, front to back or side to side is one rep. <clears throat> and I'll get the athletes to go three, four or five reps. We throw it into the warmup. It's of course great for grip strength. And then it opens up the shoulder, which is offsetting what they do in school all day with that hunched over posture that is going to cause shoulder pain. We're going to have uh, people getting surgeries. This generation will get surgeries on their shoulders and backs in their mid thirties, not from activity, but from lack of, and they're going to mistake pain for like what you said, like the body is, is coming to life. So schools to, you know, Eric are just not a good thing for physical fitness, unless you're doing like exercise snack breaks where like you go to each class and do maybe 10 drop squats. Then next class you do 10 pushups. Next class you do, you know, 24 count jumping jacks. That's much healthier than a kid sitting in, in school for six hours a day. Then he goes to sports. Then he's back to sitting down. You want more of that activity throughout your day. Um, and also, you know, look, being in a high school, and I say these things knowing that somebody could watch this video and complain and report me, but I'm stating facts. I'm not putting anybody down. I'm stating facts about things that need to be addressed. You know, boys today have boobs and beer bellies, yet they don't drink beer. Many boys just don't look healthy. Their hair is a mess. Their skin looks like crap. They're very pale, which shows just lack of sun exposure. Uh, it shows that they stay inside all the time. They look unhealthy. Um, and then, of course, everybody on the phone with the neck, it is not good. And so you're right. Physical education needs to change. I mean, it needs to, we need to get away from, oh, the kids could walk. Why? Like walking is a great activity, no doubt. But when you're a teenager, you need to be able to jog. You need to be able to run. Every teenager should be able to run one mile without stopping. That's just some basic fitness, okay? I asked a couple of uh, seniors, I said, what should be, you know, a normal amount of push-ups that a senior boy should be able to do? They said 20. I said, yeah, that's a good number. A boy should be able to do 20 in a row. Girls should be able to do eight, 10 in a row, not kneeling on the floor. 
Okay, girls should be strong. They should want to be strong. It's, it's you know, this is great, not just for the physical, but as you know, the emotional and mental health. Mental health was not a word we utilized decades ago. Now it's a major factor with uh, high school kids. But I bet you if, if uh, kids were lifting weights, pumping iron, even just machines, you wouldn't have kids that were struggling with mental health issues. And so, you know, I, I, as much as uh, Planet Fitness gets a uh, flack, I think it's great for a lot of kids because it's all machine-based, so they don't have to figure anything out, right? Dumbbells are under are 50 pounds or less. I'm obviously not a fan of them bringing pizza or donuts or whatever they do, but they allow kids to train for free in the summer, okay? So it's free, although I always say, I tell these kids, I go, listen, when I was a teenager, gym membership for me was usually 45 bucks a month per month. Now it's like $9.95 per month, okay? No air conditioning were the gyms that you and I would go to. So I think schools, if they were smart, <clears throat> they would find room. They would convert two classrooms and put uh, weight selectorized machines in there. Let kids go in there and let them go through a circuit. Don't make it difficult for them to have access to uh, exercise. And here's the last thing I'll say, Eric, is, you know, I'm doing this on an iPhone. The iPhone is a computer. I could get any, I could learn how to exercise and get a diet in five seconds. There's more information, more readily available, more easily accessible than ever before, accessible in a millisecond. And yet we are weaker and unfitter and unhealthier than ever before. And so information is lack of information is certainly not the problem. We have all the information we need, but we need opportunity to do, to do it. And uh, sports, I look at the sports now, it's like, um, it's even going to get harder. Not only is it getting hard for high school kids to just try out for a sport and get developed, it's happening now in college because of that transfer portal. Um, I saw a video somebody recorded yesterday. I think it was the New Mexico football coach. He said, we're only going to take seven high school kids this year. He goes, I'll tell you why. You don't, have, you don't guarantee us anything. We don't know if you're going to quit. We don't know how you are in the classroom. You just don't, you don't, give, us enough, um, you don't give us enough of a guarantee that you're going to stick to it. He's like, we're just going to pull somebody out of the transfer portal. And so now, if you want to get recruited to sport out of uh, high school, you probably got to be really damn good. I don't want to say elite, but it looks like that's the way things are moving is they've removed the middle ground. Um, and then ironically, your most average players in a year or two are going to be your starters. So you have to, I, I believe coaches must develop and put a lot of effort into those average kids who can all become good contributors because I don't want a team of five or seven all-stars and, you know, 20, 30, 40 average people. I'd rather have, you know, build up all those average people and get a lot of good players. And then you have those naturally one, two, three elite players because it's all those good players that are going to make the plays. They're going to, it's going to be the compounding effect in a good way. Uh, by the way, I have the, um, I forget exactly what it's called. I printed it. I had it printed and formatted into a book. I'll send it to you. It's like the JFK files. 
And when he was planning to implement the presidential fitness test, he got kind of what I was saying. He got all the influential people, kind of like today you have influencers online. He got influential people to kind of write uh, one, two paragraphs about why they support the presidential uh, fitness test. And it was like the mayor of Los Angeles, you know, the governor. And then it was these actors. And it was like a local dentist, a local doctor, a local attorney. It was all these people that kind of had positions of power, so to speak. It was uh, pro football players. Uh, I have to send it to you as a PDF. I printed it out. But um, they were all saying like, yeah, be strong, be fit, exercise hard. And uh, going back to Rocky, you know, Eric, hard work is demonized today. It's too much. It's dangerous. It's not optimal. It's imbalanced. But I've often said if kids would follow a Rocky program, and I didn't know there was a poster. Now I have to find it on eBay. Um, if they followed that program through middle school, jump rope, run, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups. He did military presses. He did curls. Um, that's great stuff. Yeah, okay, he's not working the back a lot. He's not doing lunges and unilateral stuff. But that's tremendous foundational work that kids can really implement. And it's so funny, like here we are, it's 2024 in a couple of days. And sometimes you'll see like a real popular, uh, you know, influencer being talking about how jumping rope is like the next coming of God. And it's like, guys, like we're making that big of a deal of jumping rope. And it just goes to show you that those basics, they always work. You know, I, I just trained here. And I don't start really sweating till I start hitting those basic exercises, till I start hitting the barbell. You know, last week on Friday at my school, we did a fundraiser for the weight room. And I didn't train here in the morning because I went to the school very early. So I was like, all right, today I'm just going to do a high rep pump up day all on these machines. For 30 minutes, I was moving all around. I was barely sweating. You know, lap pull down, cable row, cable crossover, tricep push downs lap pull down to the front, this, that, five, six rounds of it. I'm like barely sweating. But let's say I'm doing pull-ups, push-ups, bench press, farmer walk, sled drag. Now I'm sweating. I feel like I'm working. And so that builds my confidence a lot more than just getting a pump. And, and I think that's massive for today's culture of kids is they need that confidence. And uh, listen, like, I look at my son. I'm going to go see him play basketball. He's not a great basketball player. He could rebound, and then he could hit a shot. He's really put a lot of time into baseball. In his younger years, he wrestled. But he has confidence because he's strong, and he grew up in this gym. And before he touched the weight, you know, this office was like a playroom for my son and daughter. So he was around kids since age you know, I'm here 11 years, so he was four years old. He was around, you know, middle school, high school, and college kids lifting weights and getting after it, and he learned that that should actually be your normal activity. And so he would come out here and sneak in a rope climb. He would sit on a sled that somebody was pushing or pulling. Then they would take plates off, and they'd be like, Ethan, you do it. Or, 
you know, he'd see somebody deadlifting and he'd be like, daddy, teach me how to do that. So getting kids strong at a young age builds confidence when they are older. It helps them make better decisions in life. You know, uh, I'm, I'm proud of my kids. My son does a real good job with all the nutrition, the self-care. My daughter is a very high-level athlete, but now we're really trying to get her into that space of learn how to care for your body. Um, I want her to take advantage of tools online like the Ready State from Kelly Starrett, Squat University, because I think as an athlete, you got to learn to address your own injuries. So I try to empower them rather than drag them to do the work. You have to find whatever like makes it important to them. There's also the important part, and it's it's always eye-opening for me, is when I'm working with, especially with younger kids, if I have some like freshmen in the group, and they'll stop a set, and, I'm, and I'll say, why'd you stop there? Oh, because I was, I said, could you have done more? Yeah, I could have done a bunch more. So then why did you stop? Well, I don't know. So like, was it difficult? And teaching them the basic concept that you need to be two things to in order for all this to work. You need to be successful, meaning I can't have you do it with shitty form and you got to get at least the reps that I, that I assign. But you also have to be challenged. Like when you put it down, you should maybe only be able to do one or more, two, one or two more perfect reps. And yes. until you feel what that sensation is like, you've never gotten outside of your comfort zone and anything great you want to accomplish in your life is going to happen outside of that comfort zone. And the art of doing it that we know, but unfortunately that most sport coaches don't know is outside of your comfort zone is getting right to that edge of your ability. It isn't running gassers or poles until you can't move anymore. That's nonsense. It's being able to, I got to know right how to do it. And you know, you said it really elegantly is like, you can do that really well and really safely with sleds, with crawls, with carries. And so if you really know what you're doing, it's getting kids to understand that. I want you to get to that edge of your ability and I want you to go one step further and I know you're going to be safe doing it because I'm overseeing it because I'm not a basketball coach or a baseball coach looking to put a couple extra bucks in my pocket. So I'm going to lay out a speed ladder and say, I do strength and conditioning. You're right. That's the unfortunate realities of where we're at is um, kids are very confused with effort and uh, like, oh, why did you stop there? Could you have done one more? Yes. Okay, that's good. But I'm watching you and you could do five more, eight more. And so what that shows is a massive lack of experience of doing things that challenge them. And uh, I think, you know, I look back as a kid, I'm always like, man, I wish I was, you know, I, I wasn't born in this country. My parents came, my dad was from Romania. My mom's from Israel. So my dad didn't get us involved in the quote unquote American sports. But I always told my son, like, man, I wish I played baseball and football because I could have coached because I, I would have implemented short sprints, squat jumps, walking lunges, buddy carries, partner hand walk, you know, wheelbarrow stuff. That would have been great for them. I watch kids on baseball, no warm up. They just go out and they start throwing. And, uh, you know, I think we mentioned it yesterday, part one, so many injuries like shoulder hurts, elbow hurts. And when I look at the kids that are hurting, Eric, I could see it in their physique. There's zero muscle on them. They're not spending any time doing Rocky workouts, right? That would have been <clears throat> really good for a lot of these kids. And the parents who don't know any better, you know, what they tell you is he goes to the gym with his friends or his coach does it. Okay. But I could like, my neighbor could clean my teeth, 
but my neighbor is not a dentist. I'm going to the expert. I've also said things. I think this will hit home with the parents who watch. We all drive cars. You know, once you're 17, you got your license. But we don't all drive NASCAR, right? Oh, I'm driving my car. It's the same thing. Guys, let me into the race. I do what you're doing. Well, they drive cars a lot differently than we drive cars, although technically it's, quote, unquote, the same thing. So, yes, your son or daughter might, might be at a uh, place where they deadlift, but how do they deadlift? Where they train, but what does that warm-up and preparation look like? What is the adjustment being made for in-season, off-season, pre-season? What is the adjustment being made when somebody talks about their shoulder hurting, their elbow hurting? or they've got a little pain right around their shoulder blades, scapula area, what does that coach do? Does the coach know how to do anything? Um, the, and, the, and the answer oftentimes is it's, it's not special. It's just, you know, letting the kids do it on their own. And I've seen what happens when kids train on their own. It's dangerous. It's crazy dangerous. Uh, that's why YouTube fails came out because of all the crazy stuff happening. I never saw that kind of stuff happening at a gym when I was a teenager all the way up until my late 20s opening my own gym. Never. There was always one guy, a weird guy doing some dumb things. But now it's everywhere. It's rampant, which is like, hey, man, we're doing more wrong stuff, but we've got access to all the information and things because nobody goes deep. Right. I read Arnold's encyclopedia of modern bodybuilding a gazillion times learning looking at technique uh now people watch videos but scroll through it very fast they're too scattered reading makes you uh be creative it makes you visualize what you're reading about we're not there anymore you know i wonder like i write books and i'm like ah, the people who really need to read these books are probably not reading them the people who need it they're not all right. So let's get one more question in. Cause that's the one I actually, ironically, I want to talk about is information. So it's really hard for that parent, for that kid to know what's good information and what's not. And yes. quite frankly, you know, they're going to go to this, they're going to click on whatever sexier. They're not going to listen to old guys like us. They're going to go to whatever the, the, the guy who has abs and who's, you know, juiced out of his mind and they're going to go get drawn to that. But then we also have a challenge is coaches. Like we, you know, we're, we're, in this competition for clicks and likes and, and we want to put out good training information, but, True. but you know, some of that stuff isn't the eye candy that draws that type of attention, you know? And, yeah. and so it's not sexy. And so what you're seeing is a snippet and you're not seeing the whole thing. And so like the, the, the way I always describe it is when, when someone sees a clip online and I say, well, I, is this good or bad? And I said, I can't judge based on that clip. It would be, and I asked him, I said, what's your favorite movie of all time? And I said, okay, well, what if it, you know, let's in, in your case, if it's Rocky, what if you <laughs> only walked into the theater 45 minutes in and you got to see 60 seconds of Rocky and then you left, would it have the impact it would have had? No. And it's the same thing not. as seeing a clip of 60 seconds of one pro athlete's workout context. You didn't see anything that happened before right. or what happened after. So I don't know if it's good or if it's not good, unless it's really dumb. So that's part of the challenge we have as coaches. If we're going to stay relevant, we need to put out content, but it's not always the sexy stuff that's going to get the clicks and the likes. Right. And you know, you're right. It lacks context. Like I could share something on Twitter, but you know, what's the context, you know? So the answer to a lot of these questions is it depends. 
Is that a good exercise? It depends who's using it. When were they using it? What's the athlete's experience? If I see crazy exercises, it probably fits good into like a NFL football players program because those guys are crazy. They want crazy stuff. It makes them feel special. It boosts their confidence. They're already freaks. Okay. They're, they're already savages, but like you said, I could watch a squat video and you might think the, the mom or dad might be like, Hey, that's, that's what my kid does. Well, you see that the bar is too high on his neck. You see his feet, his ankles are moving his ankle mobility and the uh, pliability of his like Achilles and soft tissue of the Achilles and the calves need to be addressed. On the way up, do you see how he was hunching over? That's an upper back weakness. On his last rep, he didn't stand straight up. He started walking it into the rack. That's a lack of uh, being coached. That's a lack of technical proficiency. That kid probably shouldn't be squatting. He should be on a goblet squat. He should be building his back with recline row, face pull, chest supported row. He's wobbling a little bit while squatting. Let's do single arm kettlebell carries to build trunk stability. Forget about squats. Let's do Bulgarian split squats and do unilateral strength and build him up. His back is so weak. A bar on his back is not helping him. Let's get pull-ups. Let's get shrugs. Let's do pull-apart. So you and I see that, but they just see squat. It's the same thing, but how are they doing it? And then with regards to, you know, putting out content, I'm really getting better every year, every day at letting go and just saying like, um, I'm not going to have the most views because I'm not six pack abs, shirt off with a videographer coming at me at two different angles and all this effects of the video. I'm going to keep it real, which means my videos will not match the algorithm or any of the other stuff that gets a lot of views and likes. But at the end of the day, I'm putting out something that's quality, something that I actually do, and uh, something that I would actually recommend and do with my own kids. You know, I always tell athletes, if I say it to you, I would say it to my son and daughter. If I do this exercise with you a certain way in a specific manner, I would do that with my son and daughter if they were in your shoes. If I'm telling you that you're carrying way too much body fat and you got to lean up and you got to work on nutrition, I'm not trying to put you down, but if my own son was fat like you are, I would tell him he's fat and these foods cannot be in the house. And this, and these are the steps we need to take to make change. And we're so afraid to tell the truth to kids, uh, but that's how we make progress. You need to be told the truth about performance. And plus, remember, if, if a kid is joining a sport team, I tell them, you are signing up to be coached. That's what you're telling me. You signed up for this uh, tennis team, basketball, baseball, rugby, whatever the sport is. You're raising your hand, volunteering to be coached, which means somebody with more experience than you is going to tell you what to do and how to do it because that's the better way that's going to help you perform better, be safer, and achieve more success. But kids get offended when you coach them. They take it like it's an attack or parents get upset with it. So we got a whole, like, you know, we got a lot of shit going on. And I'm telling you, if people went back and just copied Rocky and that Rocky poster would come back to life, we would solve a lot of problems, Eric. Hard work, 
you know, getting after it with the basics, being in good cardiovascular shape. We're so worried about the flying 10 that kids can't run a 400 meter. They can't run a quarter mile. What's the flying 10? Like, is it bad to be in shape? The reason why we see so many injuries is because they can't even handle practices because they're so out of shape. They're so specific. So <clears throat> sports performance is in a, in, in a crate. It's in a tough place. And I think, you know, for the coaches, you got to stay true to your heart and put out what's best for the kids. And as parents, this is a tough one. You need to research and start learning, you know, whether it's through podcasts or books or videos, but you have to find like, who is best for your son? Is it who is five minutes closer to home and 50 bucks cheaper? Is that's what's best for your son? Maybe that is the best coach. You know, maybe you're lucky. Maybe the person in your town is world-class or you might have to travel and find. So parents need to do research. What's the track record of this coach? You know, can people train there when they're injured? Can this coach help kids who are below average? Or does this coach only help athletes who show up elite? You know, I want, I, I really think the, the best coaches can take those, sub, those subpar mediocre kids and turn them into savages. That's how you know you got a great coach. Well, one last thing. The other thing, and, and I had this conversation with John Tarine when he was on the show, is that oh, he's awesome. we're, all, we're also in this really weird place. And I've had this discussion with, with multiple people in that our field doesn't get the respect it deserves because we allow people, like you said, who aren't really in it to do it. And this is a, a big uh, fault of a lot of, of, of a lot of skill coaches who take on the strength and conditioning role. Yes. And I said, it is, it is. What it's become on the flip side is it's become legalized child abuse. And what I mean by that is if your son or daughter came home, Zach, and they said, oh, I can't even walk because of something their English teacher did to them, they, the English teacher would be up on charges. But right. if they come home and say, oh, well, my football coach did it to me. Oh, well, he's a good, tough coach. That's, that's great for you. No. There's nothing, you know, that's not the an equivalent. And so you're everything right. that you're saying is what is what a quality coach is. And if you don't know how to find that, like you said, you need to do your research because the coming home and I can't walk or coming home and I'm so sore that I need <clears throat> Advil every day is actually the, the your first tip off that you have a really shitty coach doing what they're doing. I, I think I posted uh, on Twitter last night or this morning and Instagram that same thing. What is the education qualifications of the coach what is their experience what is their track record do they understand how to make adjustments for your son or daughter for their age their chronological age their biological age and their training age and you're right somebody said that to me they're like when the sport coach wants to run the weight room can i just go and uh, teach chemistry today and start touching all the burners and mixing all these chemicals together people would be like get out of there or what about art I want to go and run an art class today. Are you the art teacher? No, but I, I did art. I, I did art back in the day. Oh, they would never let it happen. But you're right. There's just way too many people allowed in the weight room. And uh, if parents are trying to understand like how bad it could get, well, kids have died in the weight room. Kids have died in conditioning. Why? Because they had a uneducated sport coach who had no clue what they were doing but they refused to get help and the school and administration did not say 
we need an expert working with other kids, working with the human body, which is quite complicated. It's, it's quite complicated. So again, uh, you and I don't go teaching chemistry class or physics because we did it back whenever we did it. All right. We do it because we've been educated on it. We've gone through experiential, whether it's mentorships, internships, and just every day we are studying and deep diving into this ever-changing um, thing because of the human body is constantly changing. So you're right. And it's Eric, it's unfortunately, it's heartbreaking that that's where we are, that um, people just don't get it. It's kind of, it's heartbreaking. So this is officially our first episode. That's a two-part episode smash into one and nobody could do it better than, than you did coach. So, uh, thank you. And, and I think, I think we, you and I could probably make a six hour episode, but, all, all um, day. but with that, uh, let's talk about before we wrap up, what do you got lined up for 2024? What's new and exciting? What projects you're working on? Well, I want to finish. Um, I started the audio book to my book that I published in late summer called Iron Journeys. And uh, I got to finish that. I'm, I'm on break now. Hopefully I can get that done. Um, I'll see you. You'll be speaking at the NHS SCA New Jersey um, State Clinic. I've got a uh, trip in the middle of January with Paul Colodi that Play is sponsoring. And so we're going to go down to North Carolina to a Feed the Cats seminar. And uh, Rich Gray is the vice president of play. So he saw that Paul and I posted and said, hey, we're going to take a road trip, visit coaches on the way to this clinic. He's like, I love that you guys are doing that. That's what coaches used to do. They would get on the road. They would share. They would immerse themselves into the training, right? People would go to Westside Barbell and train there. And uh, that's what we're going to do. So I'm excited for that. And uh, then I, I got to really keep uh, improving what I'm doing as a coach here at the Underground Strength Gym. We got to impact a lot more people. We're in a, a small town, Manasquan. We should be training 100 of these kids minimum. And then my high school. <clears throat> Next year, I got it so that strength and conditioning is part of physical education. But right now, it's being done only for one block during the day. So I'm really trying to attack what's right in front of me and not get lost, you know, in the, in the forest, so to speak. Uh, that's awesome. And, and kudos on all the great work you're doing and keep it up. Thank and we'll you. have links to, to all that stuff uh, in the show notes. So make sure you check it out. It's awesome stuff. Thank you. And we want to thank all you for listening. And this has been the principles of performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the principles of performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.